0: Forever and ever. Amen. Lord, come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Speak life to us and may every heart bow in obedience to the word of the Lord. Help us to please you with our response in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite books as a kid... Uh, it was written in 1963. I think I read it maybe, uh, maybe a couple of years later. Oh, I was, it, it was a, a book called Run to Daylight. It was written by Vince Lombardi. And it was, uh, the whole book was him preparing the Green Bay Packers for a game, just one game, that's all it was about, against the Detroit Lions in the 1962 season. It was a forerunner of a book that was written maybe five years later called Instant Replay by Jerry Kramer. But in those days, uh, and it was a different day, I wouldn't advise you letting your kid do this today, but um, whenever my mom and dad would let me, I would go ride the bus after school, go downtown to the library, and I lived in the library as often as I could get there. And, um, usually my brother Randall would pick me up on his way home, uh, or my other brother at times would, would do that. So it was a, it was a fun thing for me. And on the way back, we would talk about the books I got and, and um, I had gotten this book, I read it and then started reading it again and I turned it in and my brother said, what did you learn most or what did you enjoy most about Uh, the book run to daylight. I said, well, because the, the Packers were my favorite team. I said, well, I learned a lot of stuff. I said, I learned that they used to be the green Bay meat Packers. They weren't just the Packers. They were the meat Packers. And uh, that was the, the company that sponsored the team. And uh, we talked about that a little bit. We got to talking about other, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but if you're here and you're just determined you don't want to listen, this will be something you can think about. Uh, I, I learned, I, I, that started me on a quest and I found out the, the origins of the names of teams as a fascinating study, like the, the basketball team in Los Angeles that, that, uh, that I don't like. Um, I often wondered, why they had the name Lakers. There are no lakes in Los Angeles. Um, And I couldn't figure that one out until I found out that they moved to Los Angeles from Minnesota. And Minnesota is the land of however many thousand lakes. In fact, uh, it dawned on me one day when I was flying through Minneapolis, they had t-shirts for sale. It said, Welcome to Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes and a few hundred idiots. And I saw that <laughs> shirt. Um, so that's why the Lakers are called the Lakers <coughs> uh, uh, are called the Lakers. Now, um, the Dodgers they were the trolley dodgers. They were so fast they could dodge the trolleys back before the days of automobiles. One of my favorites is the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. Pittsburgh Alleghenies, Major League Baseball, they were called the Pirates by their enemies because they underwrote so many contracts, they were stealing other players. And one of the um, uh, administrative guys from Philadelphia Athletics said, they're just a bunch of Pirates. And so they started calling them, they're pirates. They're not the Alleghenies, they're pirates. And the Alleghenies decided, we like pirates better. <laughs> so you got Pittsburgh pirates. So I was talking to my brother about these kinds of things. And he says, well, well, what else? What, what really stuck in your mind? And I said, uh, and I was, just, I was just a little fellow. I was like nine years old. I said, I expected the book to tell me the deep things about football, the deep things about being a professional NFL player. And I said, I tell you what surprised me. he said. I said, Vince Lombardi, whenever somebody messed up, he would cancel everything they had planned and he would come back and says, let's talk basics. Let's just talk basics. And you've probably heard the story. It was in that book that they had lost a game they shouldn't have lost. He didn't want them to make the same mistakes as they played against Detroit. And this is what Vince Lombardi said. He said, gentlemen, we're going to lay our plays aside, we're going to lay our strategies aside, and we're going to talk about some basics. And to this um, championship team of football players, professional football players, he held up the ball and he said, gentlemen, let's begin. This is a football This is a football. And the more I read, the more I realized that Vince Lombardi and coaches like him understand that no matter what you want to achieve, your ability to achieve will hinge directly on your grasp of the basics. That's why Paul told Timothy, he said, Be a good pastor reminding the people of what they already know. And I was getting ready for the message today and uh, Corey said, do you need anything for me? I said, just pray for anointing. I said, because this is perhaps the most basic, simplistic message i preached in years. I said, I've gone over it several times and I can't see anything to get real excited about because it's just the basics. But what we need to understand is that the degree to which we latch onto the basics is the degree to which we can excel. Amen. Now I want to tell you what God is doing. I don't want you to be surprised. Um, I wrote this in my journal and then yesterday I heard Mike Bickle say the same thing. Um, slightly different words, but this is basically what he said. Um, he said, in the days ahead, the church should not be surprised or shocked by two things. He says, don't be surprised, and I think he used the word shocked, by the magnitude of power that God is about to pour out on his people to do for signs and wonders and the furtherance of the kingdom and the anointing to bring in the harvest. He said, don't be shocked or surprised by that. But he also said this, but neither should you be surprised or shocked at the magnitude of the pushback. He said, I don't think the church understands this. And this is what I've been saying. I I don't know that I've said it as well as Mike Bickle did. But what we don't understand, I think, is that if we are truly approaching the end times, and I believe we are the end of the end times. I know we're in the end times, but if we're approaching the end of the end times, I don't think we understand that the wheat and the tares grow up together. We, we, we have some people that think we're just going to make it better and better and better. And then the kingdom wins. And then there are some folks that are say, saying it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus, it's just so bad Jesus has to get us out. And then he'll take care of everything. And both views are wrong. And both views are right. Both views are wrong and both views are right. The wheat and the tares as, as well as many other scriptures teach us that at the same time we will have a magnificent stunning. We won't understand it. We think we're just going to get a little anointing merit badge. And we're going to go through hospitals and do this and we're going to raise the dead and do that. And we think it's just going to be an enhancement of what we've always been. But I think it's going to be something that so floors us and so overwhelms us that we're going to be absolutely shocked at what God does. And what else can shock us is that we will be over in, in awe, almost overwhelmed by the thought that in the midst of this mighty power of God, there will be an intense pushback from the enemy. We've got to understand that we live in both Worlds, You say, well, how do we navigate that? We navigate it by understanding the currency of heaven is humility. It's, it's not a personality type. It's not a, it's not a presumptive, well, this is my confession. It is humility. Humility is the currency of the kingdom, not type A personality. Humility is the currency of the kingdom, not these glib phrases and formulas that we try to get everyone to understand. I tell you, if I can use a a non-biblical analogy, when Frodo in Fellowship of the Rings found himself in the battle for his life, he took blows from the enemy, from spears and swords and, and, uh, and clubs that they could not imagine that he could survive. He survived and no one could understand how a little frail hobbit could survive until after the battle, when they went to pick up what they thought was his dead body, they realized that underneath his clothing, he was wearing a, a, a protective garment of mithril silver. And Mithril Silver, for those of you that aren't really mature Christians, you, you need to know that it's, it's the most powerful thing that Middle Earth had to offer, the most protective thing. And what we're going to find, hear me now, loved ones, what we're going to find is that humility is going to be the thing that protects and humility is going to be the, the component of anointing. I'm telling you, the day of critics is coming to an end. The day of those that consider themselves aloof and consider themselves more than others, they're going to come to an end. They're going to find themselves pushed to the side because what God is going to, to bless is an attitude of humility. Uh, read the book of Revelation and you say, well, the Revelation talks about that great harvest. The Reve- book of Revelation talks about two harvests that happen one right on top of the other. The first harvest is the harvest of the righteous. There's going to be a great harvest of souls into the kingdom, but right on the heels of that, right alongside that, there's going to be a harvest of judgment for those that have stood against the kingdom of God. Loved ones, we've got to change our thinking, (coughs) and I believe we've got to move away from the idea that says we're just going to get better and better and smarter and smarter and more and more anointed. And we've got to realize that God is going to give us a greater anointing. He's going to give us a greater blessing. He's going to give us a greater revelation. He's going to give us a greater understanding. But it's going to be right in the middle of a greater attack from hell. And if you don't get that settled, you won't know which report to believe. You'll wake up on Monday and say, Oh, what a day we had yesterday. And then everything falls apart by Tuesday. Well, I guess the devil hits his counterattack. He's stronger than God. No, we're in the era of wheat and tares. You know, do you know that it's the same time that is spoken of when the scripture says, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall uh, uh, see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and upon handmaidens, every one. He said, on all of you I will pour out of my spirit, says the Lord. You say, well, that's that's what I'm claiming. Well, but at the same time, there's a prophecy that says, in the last days, evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse, deceiving And being deceived. And then it goes on for a couple of verses talking about the characteristics of the wicked. And you say, if you don't understand that both of those things are going to happen at the same time, if you don't understand that we are in a world that has matured in righteousness and in evil, and if you don't understand that, you're not going to be able to read the battle report. You're going to think on Monday, God's in control. You're going to think on Wednesday, the devil's in control. And you're not going to know who's really winning the battles until you understand we don't have to fulfill both prophecies. We get to choose which prophecy we're going to fulfill. And loved ones, we are in an age that will see incredible persecution. We are in an age that will see incredible wickedness. And abominations rise up all over the world. But we must not be overwhelmed by that. We must understand that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And we've got to understand, we've got to understand, we've been taught either directly or indirectly. We've been taught that as as we get further down the road, things are just going to get better and better and better. You know, the night shall turn to to dawning and the dawning to noonday fair and Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth. All of that is true, but it's true at the same time as great darkness increasing. So we have got to make a change. We've got to make... uh, Uh, an adjustment in our thinking. I think we may have prostituted Romans 12, where we said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. I know I've talked on this. I know some of you want me to stop, but loved ones, we we have taken that scripture and scriptures like it. And we've said, we just got to get a better confession we've just got to get a better testimony and testimony's important and confessions important but we need to understand the bringing in the kingdom is not just getting a collection of glib phrases it's a changing of our minds so that we understand what's going on around us it means that what we're going to see is not an acceptance of new revelation Not an acceptance of new programs. Not an acceptance of this is what God says is the new way that he's working. Now, God can do anything that he wants. But I want us to understand it's not that we need to get a, a profession lined up or a formula lined up. It's that we've got to put on the robe of humility We've got to understand that we can't understand what God is doing or not doing without being in his presence. And we've got to be transformed so that we begin to think with his thoughts and not with our own. Well, that's incredibly good preaching. So let's just move on here. Um, You see, well, let's read our text. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. You ought to have this in the front of your journal or your flyleaf of your Bible. This is a promise. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hand. I want you to understand this. In the midst of a world that's gone crazy, we are preparing the arrival of the King. In the midst of a world that is hardening its heart against the gospel, we are proclaiming the gospel and the spirit is preparing hearts to receive it. I took a picture uh, when I was up at Billy Graham Library. Um, I'm not sure you can see it really well. It, uh, can we, is it on the screen? Or I mean, I know it's not now. Can we get it on the screen? But it's, it's um, Ruth Graham's tombstone. And uh, it gives the date, June 10th, 1920, June 14th, 2007. And you'll see, if you can see it there at the bottom of the stone, this is what it says. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Ruth Graham said years before she died, She said, everybody's heard the phrase, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. But she said, as I was driving through a town, I think it was Boston, with my family, she said, every time we had gone through there, it was horrendous. It was the the big dig, the big tunnel that they were doing. She said, it was absolutely horrendous. She says, but when it was done, I saw a sign that brought such comfort to me. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. And she said, I want everybody to know that we are under construction, but God is going to end the construction when he takes us into his presence. And we need to thank everybody for their incredible patience. Loved ones, I've got good news for you. I know you've been looking at this barrel and you're saying, yeah, I've got this missing. I've got this missing. I'm, I'm, I'm Pastor, I'm a little discouraged because I, I'm not... I'm not really put together the way I ought to be put together, but I want to give you some good news. Are you ready for this? God is repairing your barrel. God is restoring that which the enemy has taken from us and broken. And I don't want to put this barrel up here week after week to only say we're broken you, those of you that were here when we first introduced it, we said, understanding what's going on here, this barrel, it's a 53-gallon capacity on an average whiskey barrel. Not that this is whiskey. This was Kool-Aid. But <laughs> if the barrel is functional, it holds 53 gallons. But because of this piece right here missing... Well, every, all these other pieces are great, but because of this piece that's missing, that means, that means the capacity of this barrel only can go to here. So what God is doing through the work of sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit is he is doing what Nehemiah did in Jerusalem. He's rebuilding the walls. See, when you came to Jesus, your future was determined. When I came to Jesus, I was delivered from the penalty of sin. When I come to Jesus and I really become his, hell no longer haunts me. The possibility of going to hell because I have passed from death to life. Now, when Jesus comes and either takes me home through death or the return of Christ... I will be removed not just from the penalty of sin. I will be removed from the very possibility of sin. But right now in this life, I am being delivered from the power of sin. The penalty for sin is dealt with at the cross. The potential for sin in the future will be eradicated. It's this barrel repair project that I'm dealing with right now. But I want you to know, I think we've got it in our heads that we are broken and our walls have been broken down. But I want to let you say goodbye to the barrel today with understanding this. The Holy Spirit, who is typified by Nehemiah in that great book of restoration, what God is doing is restoring us so that every day that passes, if we'll cooperate with him, we become more and more like him. Now, that's not as easy a thing as you might think, but let me give you a little encouragement. There are three things. This isn't the message. This is just three observations. Uh, Observation number one from the passage that we just read. He will bring to completion the work that he began in you. He will bring it to completion. Um, How do we know that? Because he says the Lord will perfect, and that word means complete or bring to maturity. God says, number one, I want you to know what I've started in you, I will complete it. Paul put it this way, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Here's observation number two. He will never remove his mercy from his work in progress. See, he said, your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. You're not gonna get it the worst day of your life (coughs) And then hear God say, listen, we got some, we got some budget overrun here. (laughs) I thought six or eight miracles, I'm going to get you through this, but you're, you're proving to be more of a case than I thought you were. (laughs) No, no. He will never remove his mercy from his work in progress. And here's observation number three. He will never Give up on us. The third thing he says is, Lord, don't forsake the work of your hands. (laughs) You've got to understand, he's the master builder. He said, I will build my church. So we are in an irrevocable, unbreakable contract where the creator of the universe says, I will complete what I've begun I'll never have cost overruns with you because I've given my life that covers everything. And I will never forsake you no matter how long it seems to take. Now, I, I want to give you, and, I, and I'm just going to have to introduce you to these things. It's so basic. <laughs> but I want to talk to you as we walk away from Easter I want to talk to you about five major mindset changes that the early church had to go through. You see, we always say, um, and I I do the same thing. I say, I want to go back to the early church. Lord, make us like the book of Acts. And we go back to the book of Acts and says, this is what these folks were like. Can I tell you that this is not what these folks were like? Not until after Easter. Not until after their mindset was changed. It's hard to find a more clannish, cliquish, rigid, unyielding, unbending culture than the culture of ancient Israel. And when we see all the wonderful things that they did, we say, oh man, those Jews are just wonderful. Well, I do believe the Jews were just wonderful. But I want to tell you, there were at least five ways that we see... Their minds being changed. And loved ones, please hear me. I think a lot of us say, let's just get back to normal. I think one of the reasons normal isn't coming as fast as we want it to is because God has no intention of us going back to normal. God has allowed this horrendous thing called 2020, good in some ways, horrific in other ways. Some of us have suffered loss that we could not have imagined we would face when 2020 began. Others of us received some blessing in it, but it was a, it was a earthquake kind of year. And I tell you what I believe with all of my heart. I believe that God allowed an earthquake year. I believe God allowed our economy to be shattered. I believe God allowed our social structure to be scattered. I believe God allowed some of our churches to be persecuted. I believe God allowed overreach of government in so many areas. And right now we're fighting to stay away from socialism and remain a republic. And now it's easy to say, well, it's the Republicans' fault, or it's the Democrats' fault, or it's the Red Sox' fault, whatever you want to say. But I want to tell you, nothing has touched our nation that God did not permit. I'm not saying he's the author of it. I'm not saying he instigated it. But God knows how to bring a nation that thinks it is invincible to its knees. And he knows how to get the church's attention i tell you one thing I noticed about this Easter, and it's so subjective, I can't prove it, I can't measure it, but this Easter on television and things that I saw, I have seen the most humility come from the people of God this Easter than I have seen in decades. Easter is usually about our church and our program and this, that, and the other, and Um, And there was some of that, there was some of that, but what this Easter seemed to be to me was a celebration of God coming to earth, dying and being raised from the dead to set us back on track instead of giving us everything we want to have. I'm very encouraged by that. I think the church of Jesus Christ has been shaken. The the question is whether the church is really being changed or the church is just negotiating. We go to that passage, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. On one hand, I don't think there's been a time in my life when I've seen the church pray like we've prayed in the last year. But the question is, are we turning from that which is not right? Are we turning from that which the Lord has pronounced judgment against? So are we really repenting or are we just negotiating? That's what we'll see play out over the next few months. <coughs> but let me, let me take you back to ancient Israel. Let's take into account that first Easter. <coughs> and I want to give you five things that were earth shattering for them to change. Now, to us, we say, oh, yeah, of course, that's what the gospel's about. But, loved ones, it's real easy for us to read back into the story 2,000 years of church history. It's easy for us to interpret events in the story in light of our denomination. But I want to tell you, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was was the breaking of Satan's power. I believe that. But I want to tell you, that wasn't the only thing that was broken. A whole mindset had to be broken. I am convinced that there will be three groups of churches in America. There is the church that will never bend, never change, never repent, I believe secondly, there are churches that will fight with all of their might to just go back to what we were. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but only a handful will understand that God is preparing us for the harvest. God is preparing us a new day. The gospel hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. But we need to understand there is something in us that must change. Israel, they thought the establishing of the kingdom meant the domination of their enemies. Our agenda, they were thinking. Number two, they were divided internally into classes, societal classes, political views, religious views. They knew that they were God's elect and it created such arrogance and exclusivity That Israel said, if you want to join us on the journey, come be one of us. You see, the church, we think missions is basic. We send people out to win them and invite them to come in. Not so with ancient Israel. They said, we're here. If you want to be like us, sign up for circumcision and we'll make room for you. But we're not going. We're not going out of our way. We're not changing what we Are, what we embrace. The third thing that happened in ancient Israel before Easter was bad theology, fence laws, and a wrong concept about God. Number four, the Holy Spirit anointing was seen as highly selective and largely episodic. They believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, it's a popular thing today, you know, to say, oh, they didn't believe in the Trinity. They did, but. It wasn't as articulated as it is in the New Testament, but they understood the Holy Spirit was uh, the hand of God. And sometimes it would come down and be upon a person. And after the job was done, it would be lifted. And fifthly, they were a regimented, hindering form of relationship. And God said, we've got to do something to change this if they're going to be the people of God. Loved ones, so basic, so elementary, I want to ask you to look at these five things, ask where you are, are you embracing an ancient Israel mode or are you embracing the new church mode and how well are you doing it? Here's number one, they discovered an incorruptible kingdom. This was their mistake. They mistook the establishing of the kingdom as domination over their enemies Even after Jesus' resurrection, his incredible meetings with him, he's about to go to heaven. What was on their mind? Hey, by the way, when are you going to restore the political structure that we've been waiting for all of these years? And and up to the last minute before he goes to heaven, Jesus is saying, you don't understand. This is not what this kingdom is about. The Father will set everything right, but you haven't got your eyes off of your own agenda. They had the zealots and, and one of the disciples, Simon Zelotes, he was a zealot. <coughs> the zealots said, oh, we'll fix it. We'll burn it down. You had the Pharisees that will change it by our good works. You had the Sadducees that said, we'll legislate it into proper order. And they said, we'll do it either by a cancel culture, we'll do it by, by a political culture, or we'll do it by a religious culture that excludes everyone else as possibly being right. Jesus said, you don't understand. You've got to understand what the end times are about And I think we need to understand what the end times are about. People ask all the time, Pastor, are we in the end times? Do you think we're in the end times? Loved ones, we have been in the end times since Jesus came. Jesus announced the end times. The last days began with Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist was the forerunner. Jesus is the one who formally announced it by his work. The coming of the Spirit initiated Uh, initiated it. We are in the last days. I think what you're trying to ask is, are we reaching the last of the last days? Well, one thing we know is that every day that passes brings us deeper into the last days. I do believe that Jesus spoke of a time we can describe as the last of the last days. I do believe that the last days is progressively approaching Second Timothy 3.1 says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Jesus said you're in the last days, but there's going to come a phase of the last days that are going to usher in perilous times. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, and we do our best to explain it away, but Jesus said there's coming a time called the tribulation, the great, or the tribulation, the great one. He said, it's going to be a time of such adversity and such difficulty. This is what Jesus said. He said, unless God in mercy shortened the length of that time, no flesh would survive. No flesh would survive. Yes, there's coming the end of the end times. There's coming the last of the last days. I believe that with all of my heart. But understand this, the day of the Lord is described as a day, as an era, as an event, as a kingdom. 10.25 says, uh, um, Hebrews 10.25 points out that although, are y'all with me? Okay, here. Although we are in the last days, there is an increasing implication of the last days in other words we're already in the last days but it's going to get worse and worse and worse and it's going to get better and better and better think of the end times as the time when every seed that has been planted comes to maturity and this is what he said in Hebrews don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together As the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much the more, do this so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, here's the result they became heavenly minded, which made them more effective on earth. Things began to lose their grip. I want to tell you when the Gospels began, Israel said, Get Rome out of our hair. Israel said, put our king back on the throne. When the kingdom began, (coughs) Israel said, give us back our sovereignty. Give us back our rights. And I think there's nothing wrong with having a political agenda as long as it's a good political agenda. But by the time it was over, they had discovered something that was phenomenal. They had discovered an incorruptible kingdom. And for the first time, for the first time, Time ever Israel puts their emphasis on heaven instead of an earthly kingdom. We'll know we're lining up with God when we begin to stop making the gospel about having everything we want here and being prepared for what is held there. Being held for prepared for what is held there. Here's the second thing they discovered. Uh, now they uh, they discovered a heavenly, uh, uh, a heavenly kingdom, an incorruptible kingdom. Number two, they discovered an incredible fellowship. Okay, so number one, pastor, if we get it, we're looking toward heaven more than everything we can get here on earth. Right. Okay, here's number two. They discovered an incredible fellowship. Before Easter, they were divided between the religiously conservative and liberal. You had the Pharisees that were very, very conservative, very, very fundamental, very, very um, um, much like us. Then you had the Sadducees who were very liberal. The Sadducee says, well, we believe some of the word is true, but not all of it. Uh, We believe that um, God is real, but there's no such thing as life after death. There's no such thing as angels or demons. No such thing as the miraculous. The Pharisees believed all of those things. They were divided uh, religiously. They were divided politically. The Pharisees said the only way we can establish the kingdom is to have a conservative king sit back on the throne. And the Sadducees says, hey, this is politics. We've got to negotiate. You know, there, there, you know there, there's the Romans, there were the Greeks, there were the Babylonians, there were the Persians. Life is one big compromise, and so they were divided philosophically as far as their politics go. Um, there were class distinctions. Um, very much was there a difference between upper class and lower class. Middle class almost didn't exist Before Easter, Israel's status as God's elect made them arrogant and exclusive. Paul would tell us that I was raised in a culture where I was not even allowed to sit at the table with a Gentile. In fact, we know from the rabbinical writings that the Pharisees prayed every morning, Lord, I thank you that I am not a sinner. I thank you that I am not a publican. I thank you that I am not a Gentile, and I thank you that I am not a woman. Isn't that a great devotional prayer (laughs) to begin the day with? It was based on arrogance and exclusivity. But when Easter happens, it's almost right away. They begin sharing time at a common table. They're sharing resources as a family does. They're sharing passion for a common mission. They learn to work through problems, but they did it by first becoming family to one another and then embracing those that were untouchable. The result is that the path to the Father was no longer Judaism, but Jesus. That's huge. We don't understand that. We think, oh yeah, we're we're all about Jesus, But Israel said, we've got a kingdom that needs to be set up on a political basis. Then they said, we have a way to the Father. It's called Judaism. But now it's no longer Judaism. That's what they decided in Acts 15. It's no longer Judaism. It's Jesus. Here's number three. They discovered an intimate relationship. Let me tell you what serving the Lord was like before Easter. It was already tough. I tell you, I just, a few months ago, I read, uh, I love Genesis and Exodus. But then, in my annual trek through the Bible, every year Leviticus keeps showing up. (laughs) And then Chronicles, you know, the pots and pans section. It's not the fine china that you find in other places. And, and, and I go, you know, I go through this and, and, and I know that everything in the old Testament represents something in the new, I have, I've settled that years ago. I know that God is just every, and everything he does is good. Everything he does is merciful, even though we don't understand it. I, I, I want to thank Jack Taylor who taught me years ago how to get through those rough passages of scripture. I said, I said to him one time, I said, Jack, how do you handle Leviticus. He said, well, I asked the Lord, how do I handle Leviticus? And the Lord said, Jack, just thank me that if it wasn't for Jesus, this is how you'd have to live every day. And man, that helped me. That helped me. Next time you go through a dry spot, say, thank God, I don't have to live this way because of Jesus. All of it was necessary to help us understand what God required. In fact, I've said this over and over again. If you want to know how God really feels about things, Go, go to the Torah. That's, that shows you how God feels. But we'll talk later about that. They, before Easter, they had a flawed relationship that did three things it gave them fence laws, 612, 614 commands in the Old Testament that aren't particularly burdensome, but some of them are different, uh, difficult, and, and rather rigid. But it wasn't just the 612 or 614 laws that they had to keep. They were so legalistic that they put an average, some more, some less. They put an average of 10 fence laws around every law. So by the time of Jesus, and this is when Jesus said, you've burdened yourself with things that neither you nor your fathers were able to bear up under. And he said, You've taken the commandments of men and you've replaced them uh, you've you've used them to replace the commandments of God. See, by the time Jesus was born, for every law that God required, you had ten other laws to keep you from getting even close to that law. You know, honor the Sabbath day. That's a commandment of God. Have no problem with that. But you can't eat an egg late on the Sabbath day. That's a fence law. If, if you get a a flea off your donkey, you can't scratch, not on the Sabbath day, because that's hunting and you can't hunt on the Sabbath day. Ox falls in the ditch. He may be dead by, by Sunday, but let him, let him lie. You see, they had created a, a system of fence laws that were absolutely unable to be kept It resulted in bad theology and the worst part of it is it created a God who was unreachable. That's why they had such an amazing explosion of revelation when the angel said he shall be called Emmanuel. He was saying, this God that you have legislated out of reach, he's with you. God with us. That's the most amazing name that Jesus was given, God will be with you. But they had had moved away from that. It had created bad theology. You say, what do you mean bad theology? Well, when a man was blind, they went to their bad theology, which was a result of their fence laws and, and the result of an unreachable God. And they said, who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither has sinned. Neither of them is sin. That's not the cause. And when he says it, he was born blind that God may be glorified, that's a little hard for us to wrap our heads around. But, but what Jesus was saying, it, it, Jesus wasn't saying God made him blind so he could get glory to his name. He, he was, what Jesus was saying was this. Things happen in a broken world, but God is able to move in broken things to bring glory to his name. Jesus wasn't blaming it on God. He said, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, God is able to get involved and bring glory to his name. Or that famous line, we know that God doesn't hear sinners. Oh, yes, he does. Just go to a Billy Graham crusade, watch it. Go to a church that gives an altar call. We know that God hears sinners every day, every hour of every day, every minute of every hour, every second of every minute. God loves to hear sinners. But their bad theology said, we know God doesn't hear sinners. Now God has given them a cross-cultural age of prophecy and vision. See, they they were so hung up on on the idea of you have to be uh, an achiever to be able to teach. And John wrote to the disciples in Ephesus in, in John's letters. And this is what he said. He said, you have no need that any man teach you. Now that sounds strange because God had put in the church teachers But when John said, you have no need that any man teach you, for the Spirit of God dwells within you, that was a statement against Gnosticism. And what John was saying, he says, there are people telling you that you can't find God on your own. You have to have the enlightened ones, the pneumaticoi, the the super spiritual ones. He says, but none of you need a super spiritual teacher because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and the Holy Spirit can teach every one of you the truth of God. He wasn't saying there's no need for church. He wasn't saying there's no need for teachers. But he said this thing that Judaism embraced, the mega teacher, this thing that Gnosticism perfected, the spiritually enlightened one, he said that has no place in your relationship with God at all. You have the spirit of the living God living in you. And Jesus said he will lead you into all truth. And God was this and God was that. But listen to what John said. It says, he, we beheld him and he came, he tabernacled among us and he ministered to us. And what did he say in John 1? I think it's verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. See, we, we think that it's either grace or truth. I can show you grace or I can give you truth. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's the way we ought to live. That's why the strangest statement in the book of Acts may be this one. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What man would dare put his intuition into the same comparative box with the Holy Ghost? That's what Jesus brought. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And in life's difficult problems, we are able, because of that fellowship, to say with confidence, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The result? God is now Father. One theologian said God was never called father in the Old Testament. Technically, that's true. But God told us that he was our father in the Old Testament about four times. What that tells me is that it was a statement of fact, but Israel never grabbed it. They never understood. Here's number four. They discovered the impartation of spiritual gifts. You're getting tired. I can tell you you're getting tired. So I'm gonna hurry. But I'm only doing what the kids asked me to do and preach a little longer here. So it's their fault. Wasn't that great? Well, I tell you it's gonna be a great day in here. When is that, Justin? The first Sunday in May? It's going to, we, the kids are just taking over. It's going to be a great day. Here's number four. They discovered the impartation of spiritual gifts. Before Easter, special anointings were selective and largely episodic. They were powerful. Bible, for instance, says that the, the spirit or that God wore Gideon like a glove. I mean, there were powerful anointings. And thankfully the Lord would come upon the people of God, but sadly he did not dwell within them. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit said, he has been with you, but he will be in you. Yeah. So we're learning that it's not by might or power of the flesh. Everyone was part of the body and we read Corinthians and we understand that. Yeah, every one of us is part of the body, but it goes back to that day when there were some people that said, Moses, We got some problem. We got some people that are prophesying like you prophesy and that's your job. That's not our job. And Moses said, oh, I long for the day when all of God's people will be prophets and all of God's people will understand the anointing of God that comes upon them. That is a powerful, powerful moment in the old Testament. Believers were often spectators in the New Testament. They become participants. This is the result. All God's people are empowered per service by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We operate like, um, operate like a part. That means nothing. Uh, autocorrect, always be sure that you have purged autocorrect demons out of your computer <laughs> We operate like a body. And I, I might have put, thought I put part of a body with each member having different but necessary functions. And I want to say this. I believe God can use anybody. I believe God can use anybody. But always understand this. Things are done decently and in order. And don't wrap your arms around the idea that says, I don't need anybody. That's a dangerous place to be. Here's the last thing they learned the intricate difference between submission and subjugation. They learned the difference between submission and subjugation. Before Easter, many held to a severe regimentation and even a hindering regulation of life in the family of faith. But when you come to the New Testament, you see that the wall is broken down between Jew and Gentile, between male and female, between rich and slave. It's all broken down. And there, now understand this, the church of Jesus Christ has structure. He says that I've given apostles, I've given prophets, I've given evangelists, I've given pastors and teachers. He's given these offices and he's given these structures. But he says this, it's so that everybody can rise to the occasion not that anybody lords it over anybody else. And, and um, we, we know it's true because of all the one another passages in the New Testament. Uh, the, the, he gave us, Paul gave us an amazing command. And I just want to just vent for probably 41.2 seconds, no longer. But he says, be ye kind one to another. That's what Bicoda is. Be ye kind one to another. We have, we've lost the meaning of hope in English from the way it was used in the Bible. We've also lost the meaning of kind in English from the way it was used in the Bible. I, I, almost without exception, when I say to somebody, oh, you're, you're so kind, they'll say something like this. I'm not being kind, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, to be kind doesn't mean lie. We, we, we You see, we think, oh, I just need to be kind. Well, I won't say the truth, I'll sau it. That's, that's totally alien to the idea of kind. The word kind means an action stimulated by a kind and caring heart, designed to assist in distress, to nurture to build up. And that's why even in the idea of prophecy, we're told to to wrap our heads around the idea of kindness. Prophecy is designed to edify, to encourage and bless. The result is that they began to understand holy submission, which involves both giving and receiving. You see, in the Old Testament... And a lot of churches are like this. You have offices, you have positions, and you are subject to this, and you are subject to this, and you are subject to this, and you are subject to this. And we need to go back to what Paul teaches about husbands and wives. He says in one passage that we get in arguments with all over the place, you know, about wives being submission to their husband. But there's also a passage that says you are to submit to one another. And I don't have time to deal with this today, but I think most of what God wants to do in a local church is hindered because either a man says, you've got to follow me, or a woman says, I'm just as good as you are. And we don't understand the idea that the Bible is talking about. It's not subjugation. It's submission, And it's submission. It's In its purest form, it's the same root. And I'm not talking about any sexual connotation here when I say this. But it's the same thing as making an electrical connection where you have a male part and a female part. Uh, You are are dead in the water without both parts. And one responds to the other one in a certain way. Again, I'm not talking about in, in any sexual way. But I'm saying God is raising up a group of believers that understands what it means to have mutual respect, but also understand that biblical submission says there's a time I give and there's a time I receive. It's not about taking. It's not about being the boss. You say, well, pastor, the Bible says man's head of the house. You know what it says about the wife? It calls her the neck. That turns the head. I'm serious. You know, man's ahead. head. Well, he says, wives focus on guiding and directing the household. She's the neck that turns the head. But neither of them are subject uh, or uh, are, are subjugation. They are learning that this is my role. This is your role. This is how we work this out. And every home's got to work that out. And every church has got to find a way to do things decently and in order, but also to have mutual submission to one another. It's a new thing. It's a new thing. And we get so caught up with can a woman be a preacher that we miss the point. We get so caught up with can... A man do this, or can a woman do that? We miss the point. Now, now you're tired. I know you're tired, so <laughs> I'm going to stop. This is what I want to ask you to do. Two things, very simple. I'm, I, I, what I've done today is the equivalent of saying, gentlemen, this is a football. What I'm saying is there are some issues that we've got to decide if we're going to go forward with the anointing of God. I think they are typified by these five things. Are we going to interpret the kingdom by our own interpretation or by his? Are we going to be willing to truly serve as a family and break off from these divisive um, um, ideas that, that we've had? Are we really willing to let the Holy Spirit correct our bad theology and our fence laws? and take away from us the wrong concept about God? Are we really willing to understand that the Holy Spirit brings an anointing to all the people of God? And are we really willing to drop our regimented, hindering forms of relationship and just say every one of us has an anointing from God, a place to serve, and we have mutual response one to another the other thing is this do you know jesus if you don't know jesus please come forward in just a moment when we call people to prayer and just tell whoever the prayer team is i want to know the lord the the if you're if you're online you're watching online and you don't know jesus call the number it'll be on the screen if it's not already on the screen it'll be on the screen call and just say, I want to come to Jesus. We are so thankful for the calls we are getting uh, from people that are watching online. We're so thankful. Loved ones, God is doing something incredible and it's about to shock you. It's about to shock you what the enemy will lash out at and you can't get mad. You can't get angry. I was watching the 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 new season of the chosen the other day, and Jesus is scolding James and John. He said, He said, they were in Samaria. He said, You wanted to call down the fire of God to kill these people because they opposed you. You wanted to send them to hell. And James says, Well, it sounds a lot worse when you say it like that. He is tenderizing our hearts. And the church may not look exactly like we think a church ought to look in some ways. You'll be shocked at the enemy that comes against you, but if you can be tender toward the inner enemy, you'll also be shocked at the anointing that God pours out on you. Father, we're done. We're done. Thank you for this beautiful congregation bearing with me today help us by the power of the holy spirit to become everything you want us to be help us to fight the good fight of faith help us to make the changes that we need to to make help us lord beginning with me beginning with me lord things that have offended me and hurt me and frustrated me lord i i give them to you the best way i know how um Lord, I'm, I'm not nearly as interested about my rights as I used to be. And may that continue. May we all learn what it means to be mutually submissive to one another. Oh, I know there's a structure. I know there has to be a leader, I know that. But Father, we're not going to be driven by politics. We're going to be driven by family relationships. Help us in Jesus' name.